We don't know so much about urbanites who did not have very much money, um, weren't coming from wealthy backgrounds, and how they connected with nature, how they thought about nature. From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. I'm Ben Spohn. And I'm Amaris Williams. Each episode, we sit down with one of our visiting researchers and talk to them about what they're finding in our collections. My name is Marika Plotter, and I'm a PhD candidate in the History Department at Rutgers University. And I am working on a dissertation that is thinking about what working-class New Yorkers did for fun outdoors between 1830 and 1920. And the reason why I'm doing that is because uh, environmental historians, which is what I hope to be, um, they know a lot about what wealthier people did outside for fun. They know about um, sportsmen going to the American West to climb mountains or to go to the Adirondacks in, in New York. Um, or middle class vacationers who went to the seashore or to the countryside, um, or even reformers um, who were well to do generally and were making parks within cities that sort of seemed rural, looked, looked like they were part of the country. And so we have all those stories, but we don't know so much about urbanites who did not have very much money, um, weren't coming from wealthy backgrounds, and how they connected with nature, how they thought about nature. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the sorts of places that this project um, brings you to study? What are the kinds of, what are those sorts of recreation, um, recreational spots, types of leisure activities um, that you're finding working class New Yorkers are pursuing over Mm -hmm. this kind of long period? Yeah, too long. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so... My subjects, first of all, they uh, have very little money. They have very little free time. Um, Many of them are immigrants, um, generally coming from various parts of Europe. Uh, Many are African-Americans. Many of them are uh, immigrants from China. And so they're coming over. They're dealing with a lot of struggles, um, both in terms of their identities, but also economically. Um, And so they're working generally six days a week, usually very long hours. So they only have one day, Sunday, to go somewhere, to spend some time with nature if that's something that they want to do. So I'm looking at how their options changed over time. So at the beginning of the project in the 1830s, they could walk to pleasure gardens that were near the tip of Manhattan. And so these places had started as kind of um, elite little gardens um, that started in the 18th century and wealthy New Yorkers would pay a pretty high admission charge to get in and they would have ice cream there, which was pretty hard to get. They would have little cordials and refreshments. They might listen to some music. Um, So there'd be trees and some gardens in these pretty small places. Um, But as time is passing in New York and the downtown is becoming increasingly commercial, um, many wealthier people are moving away from the the chaos of the downtown, uh, all of the increasingly industrial noise and and mess and soot. So they're moving away. Um, And so these pleasure gardens are left and the proprietors of them realize that if they're going to stay open, 
they're going to need to attract working class people. So they lower the admission prices and just try to get as many people in these places as possible. Um, so that is an option for them in the earlier part of the project. Um, the places that I'm studying, they they are they're, if they're commercial, they are kind of hanging on by a thread usually financially. Um, they can only really exist in economically marginal land because they need to have enough space to have some trees, to have some gardens, um, but and they're seasonal businesses also, so they, they can't make money all year round, not every day. Um, so my project, as time passes, it's looking further and further up the island and then out into the outer boroughs and even beyond. Um, so after Pleasure Gardens, there are people going um, to beer gardens at the end of streetcar lines. When those beer gardens start to close, they're boarding steamships along with their ethnic associations, their social groups, their uh, churches and Sunday schools, and they're going um, like two to four hours um, by boat to all these little groves on beaches and riverfronts around the New York metropolitan area. Um, so these are called steamboat excursions, and that's a big part of the project. That's kind of how I got into this, actually. Uh, I just thought it was so fascinating to think of so many people on these steamboats traveling so far away to find kinds of recreation that they couldn't access within the city. Um, I'm also looking at um, so a few downtown public parks. Um, so they're not commercial, um, they're not run by business people, but we can also see that they are struggling for survival as the century passes and as the downtown land values are really rising. So looking at the Battery, um, which we know, now know as Battery Park, but at the time was um, kind, kind of like a strolling ground um, but actually had a railroad come and have its depot hovering above that, that park. So it was really, um, there were these infrastructure interests that were um, coming into this area and making it difficult for working class people to have their recreational needs met. What are the kinds of things that, that people do in the places that they're going out to? And is that changing as the places and the ways of getting there change? I think I'll start by talking a little bit about what the story that we know about about what wealthier people did outdoors. And so that story is that wealthier people generally approach nature with um, a kind of reverence, a romanticism, um, or at least they said that that's what they did. So uh, there's there is poetry that they wrote about the beautiful landscapes, a lot of art. Um, there's this sort of assumption that when people go to commune with nature, they should walk kind of quietly and with contemplation. Um, and that is not at all what working class people are doing. Um, Well-to-do people, they did not always approach nature in this way. So sometimes they would go to uh, some kind of resort and really they're just there to have fun, but they're still talking about nature as uplifting them. It's making them more moral. Uh, it's making them a better person. But for working class people, they neither said that that's what they were after, um, nor did they they uh, do this kind of contemplative leisure. Like So at these sites I'm looking at, people were doing a lot of activities. They were playing sports, they were drinking, um, they were hanging out with their friends, they were dancing, watching performances. 
um, they're also hiking and they're also sitting in the shade. They're also seeking some contemplation sometimes, but it's not the main core of this leisure culture. So the way that I would call what they're doing is just um, they're having a very eclectic experience. They're they're doing a lot of things. They're merging pop culture with with appreciating the environment. I would say, um, and nature isn't the star of the show necessarily for these leisure experiences, but it's the beautiful backdrop. It's important that it's there. If people didn't care about it, they would go to a saloon. You know, they, they're, that's what I think anyway. Um, it's very hard to find the voices of my actors. Um, marginalized people are always pretty tough to find in the historical record. So I've only found a few things where people say direct, like explain what they're doing um, and, and what they appreciate about these, these kinds of experiences. Um, but if I just look at the activities that they're doing, and think about what their days would have been like from beginning to end, um, and think about the appeal of, of these places, especially in contrast to the places where people lived and worked, um, then I'm starting to be able to see the contours of this leisure culture. Do, is nature explicitly as a word a part of the conversation? Or because I'm wondering if this is as much about just sort of like being in a different kind of place. I don't find, I mean, in the very few voices I've found, there is no mention of nature by word, but there, there, there are people talking about trees and meadows. So they're looking at parts of nature and the word nature itself is very complicated for environmental historians, as you know. Um, and for me, I, I use it because well-to-do people are talking about nature a lot and I want to I want to be open to the possibility that working class people thought they had their own definition of nature and maybe hopefully I'll find I'll find some smoking gun that like explains this all to me or where someone really claims that word um like talks about appreciating nature through doing all these activities I probably won't so so then I think I just have to think about the environment itself Mm -hmm. um and I do need and I do think that the, the contrast between these kinds of naturalistic landscapes and the impoverished neighborhoods where people came from, that that contrast is really the most important thing. Tell me a little bit about what you're looking at here at Hagley. Yeah. What I... have we got? <laughs> <laughs> so I found a lot of stuff um, that is relevant to a bunch of different parts of the project. So. One part of the project is, I have one chapter that is thinking about downtown parks, um, the Battery and City Hall Park, and how they, these parks were really being neglected and and they were deteriorating as time was passing um, because all the city's budget for public space was going uptown to Central Park. So that's after 1857 when the park was created. and so one thing that happened to the battery was that an elevated railroad was built that went through it. And so to get into the battery, to see the, the very beautiful views, to see the trees, some of which were cut down to make room for this elevated, um, but you had to sort of duck under this structure that would be dripping oil and have cinders to like burn that would burn your clothes. 
and you'd have to plug your ears probably because it's screeching. They're, they haven't figured out a way to make these rails quiet. Um, so I'm curious about how that how that happened. Um, and and at the Hagley, I've been thinking about um, just elevated railroads themselves. There's a lot of material here about the technology of the railroads, um, but also some insights into the drama about them. So I found a really fascinating thing that some some residents of Philadelphia put together. It's a kind of memorandum against elevated railroads coming into Philadelphia. And so they sent someone, um, a, a trustworthy gentleman, as they said, they sent him to New York to look at the elevated railroads and sort of report back on what they were like. Um, and so uh, he didn't mention the battery railroad um, at all really but he was he was talking about how how just how difficult it is to live with these railroads so he was talking about the smoke and the noise um, he's talking about uh, property values going down and all of this was used as evidence to say that Philadelphia shouldn't have elevated railroads so through that I can I can through that source I can both see some some um, some descriptions of what elevated railroads were like to interact with. Um, but I can also see that people in Philadelphia were looking at New York and they were looking at this thing that had happened to downtown Manhattan and they were saying it wasn't for them. So um, it's been really important for me to use these archives to think about comparisons. I'm focusing mm. on New York, but um, there were both debates about technology and their impact on the urban environment happening all over the country, but there are also um, there are also excursion destinations. There are excursions happening. There are commercial green spaces all over the country, too. Um, so I've also found a very cool ledger kept by the proprietor um, of the Brandywine um, kind of grove, like a, 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 simil a place very similar to the places that I study, but um, happening outside Philadelphia. And so I can see in this ledger, uh, all the activities that he was uh, providing for, for his visitors. So you can see that there are swings, there are refreshments, there are drinks, there's dancing pavilions. Um, I can basically just see all of all of these activities, um, which is very helpful to compare with New York and to, so that I'll be able to um, sort of look beyond New York as I'm, as I'm writing this project. I'm also learning a lot about steamboats here. Um, there, I've been looking at a lot of records about um, st like steamboat accidents, steamboats being dangerous, and how various steamboat owners um, were were trying to resist regulations of the steamboat industry, um, and how they would sort of have to um, make claims that it was safer to travel by steamboats than than the public perceived. Hmm. Um, one other thing, sorry, this is back to elevated railroads, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, today I'm reading all of these, uh, the Chamber of Com Commerce held all of these hearings where they brought in people uh, related to the elevated railroads and, and pretty much just accused them of all kinds of things and the elevated railroads had to, had to respond. And so um, the railroads are being accused of uh, tax dodging, of having fares too high, of having... Um, machinery that is too loud and smelly of depreciating property values so all these kinds of critiques of the railroads um, it's helpful to for me to be thinking about as I'm thinking about uh, an elevated railroad really invading one of the only public spaces in downtown Manhattan 
it's also interesting to me as a New Yorker now, there's so much, um, there's so much debate about the MTA, our subway system mm -hmm. right now. And so I'm thinking about how if we had hearings today <laughs> and we're able to bring all the MTA people to answer for all the problems that, that uh, are happening now, I think that they would maybe look a little bit similar to um, <laughs> this, this source I'm finding. finding. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, I, I always like to ask people if they have like a favorite document that you found or something mm -hmm. that something that surprised you or that maybe it was like completely unrelated to your project, but you just thought it was kind of delightful. Um, any sort of gems from the archive that you've uncovered mm. so far? I found this, I don't know if this will help me, but I found something called, like, it's a little, it's a little uh, brochure kind of thing from the American Railway Literature Union. I might be getting that wrong. Um, but it's pretty much people who, came together out of a huge concern that on railroads and on steamboats, two kinds of transportation that I'm interested in, um, there's a lot of very immoral like newspapers, the, uh, the just the very terrible newspapers that people are reading on these forms of transportation. And so it's interesting to me because I am thinking a lot about ideas about morality attached to working class leisure, but this made me think that the, there might have been moral concerns about the transportation itself. So how um, how do steamboats and railroads, um, how do they sort of spread or immorality farther? Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps it's free time that people are going to uh, fill with thoughts of sin. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not sure how yeah. useful it will be, but I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting, too. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that's going on, as you probably know, is like, you know, how... How these forms these forms of public transit are you know just throwing together all kinds of people together in one place i think there's a lot of anxiety in the period about this mixing mm -hmm. of of the sexes of people of different classes and means um you know in their quest to sort of get around the city um that that you know and and then when you add to the mix you know sort of unsavory publications uh, that, that may influence the way people experience this space is clearly a problem right absolutely and they don't actually explain what kind of unsavory news um this they're even talking about um but but they're very concerned about it mm -hmm. something that i'm curious about is how these commercial leisure landscapes they they actually could offer working class people a lot more of what they wanted on their only free day of the week than public parks could. Um, if you compare uh, a, a, an excursion grove with Central Park, um, an excursion grove, you can pretty much do whatever you want. <laughs> you can be in your big group. You kind of have to be with your big group to have afforded the trip there. Um, there's music, there's political activism sometimes, political speeches. Um, there's all kinds of activities and then Central Park at the same time was pretty um, f famous for its keep off the grass signs, for its really harsh rules, uh, preventing groups from gathering, um, preventing political activism, uh, preventing music or any selling of goods except in the pretty expensive restaurants. Um, and so I'm just, I'm interested in how a public space, a space that was supposed to be democratic, did not really have all of those options available for, for working class people, and so they had to go elsewhere. 
Um, so by paying that fee, they had access to all of this entertainment, all of these activities that they wanted. But there was a minus to that, which is that the entrepreneurs who were running these places, um, they were really just trying to make a profit. And so safety sometimes um, was put on the back burner. Mm -hmm. So not only are they taking steamboats there that are often in pretty bad condition, um, and there are some, some um, examples of fires or explosions happening um, or piers collapsing, um, but, but also it was pretty, um, pretty, uh, pretty usual for there to be like a drowning or some, some sort of uh, terrible tragedy that happened on these kinds of um, trips. So there's both some, some freedom in, in, in these places that were governed by profit rather than by reformers' visions of what, uh, what nature could do for a city. Um, but there are also some drawbacks to that too. Yeah. People mm -hmm. are sort of, you know, running with their feet and doing other things in other mm -hmm. places. Absolutely. It was also just so much cheaper to go on a steamboat excursion than actually to get to Central Park, which is mm -hmm. hard for me to understand as someone who thinks of boats as very expensive and, and the subway as more affordable now. But, but at the time it would cost about 10 cents each way um, to get to Central Park. Whereas a steamboat excursion could cost maybe a penny, actually, if there are enough people on it. Um, so for a working class person who at most is making a dollar a day, but probably not that much, um, an excursion is a much better, um, much better bang for the buck. I was thinking about, you know, certainly railroads and steamboats, like the, the companies themselves are very, you know, they're coordinating in these periods. I think of, you know, like steamboat lines that can take mm -hmm. you to like, uh, you know, various places along the New England shore, you know, from different cities uh, in this period. Um, and, you know, so you get these maps, I'm sure you've mm -hmm. seen, where you have like, you know, railroad and steamboat connections, that kind of the connection of those transportation systems seems really important. Are the, What's the relationship between the people who run the transportation and the people who run these commercial amusements? Are they the same entities? Are they working with each other? How is that relationship? commercially working out? Yeah, great question. So um, they, it really varies, unfortunately for me. So some people started as transportation entrepreneurs and um, I'm thinking even there's this one person who was a congressman and had a whole shipping line and then he was like, oh, I could also ship people. And so he starts, um, <laughs> he starts running excursions and he set, it, set up a grove for people to go to um, as a political figure, his grove that he set up, he really marketed more to middle class families um, and was very explicit about about uh, what behaviors were not allowed at his place as opposed to other ones um, in his marketing materials. But um, he's a good example of someone who was involved in both the transport and the place. Um, but then there are a lot of people who were just landowners um, in the hinterlands of New York and they just turned their land into excursion destinations. And they would connect with a transportation company so that, they, um, so that someone in New York would, uh, would charter these, but would work with a community to charter the boat, bring them to this grove. Um, and then um, these proprietors of the, of the groves would get a little bit of a fee and then they'd also be able to sell refreshments there. And so it'd be two, two sort of business interests working together. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are also excursion groves and also transportation companies 
um, of varying uh, reputations. So some of them were known as like very like well-kept um, places, very uh, f like nice boats where nothing bad was happening. But then there were a few companies where the newspapers were like, these are these are the bad ones. Um, like the the places where like these particular places where people went were were the worst places. They got them the worst reporting. Um, and and the la the steamboat lines that would take people there would, were sort of similarly looked down on. Mm. I'm thinking about the what you were saying earlier about the the daily working lives mm -hmm. of the people that you're studying. Um, and I imagine, you know, I imagine some of them are working in the home doing piecework and things like that. Um, but, you know, especially for the people who are wage laborers working in, in factories in particular, um, that there's a, there's kind of a, do you think there's kind of like a, an industrial cast to their recreation as well? Yeah, I think that is a great point. And it becomes especially clear that some people experienced recreation in this industrial uh, way in the ways that they sought to disrupt it. So there are often um, fights on the way home, or I even have one story of a steamboat being connected to a barge and some of the excursionists cut the hauser between the barge and the steamboat so that they didn't have to go home and they didn't have to go back to work. Um, so this barge is just floating and then they got a bunch of extra hours in their, in their experience. Um, and so I think that some people did push back against the regimented timing. Um, often the steamboat captains would look at the clock, think about how long it had taken everyone to board. They might say, you know, we actually we can't really land at the grove that we were going to land at. We're just going to go up the river and turn back. And then people would storm the captain's quarters and like make make him land the boat so so there are people who I think are trying to claim as much of this recreation time as they can pushing back against the kind of regimented nature of of this kind of travel for steamboat excursions um, people probably didn't go on more than one or two a year um, so and if you think about just their lives in New York and it's a hot summer you know, this is their one day that they get to go somewhere else. Yeah. But I, I definitely love the point of like, are they really escaping? Mm -hmm. They're escaping their daily environments, but they're all kinds of other um, things that they're experiencing on these trips. Mm -hmm. and, and they're not really escaping the very difficult nature of their lives, which is working really hard for very little money, all kinds of hours. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a hardworking kind of recreation, it seems, yeah. too. It's like, it's it's very sort of bodily and physical and, you know. Right, and especially for women. That's another mm -hmm. thing I'm thinking about is the, like, the gender burdens that are related to this kind of recreation. So the women are having to bring picnic baskets or yeah. having to make sure that the kids' clothes are clean because they're going to be around all of every single person that they know. Um, so there is this kind of gendered labor that's involved in this leisure. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, we're just sort of, <laughs> I mean, if we open up the, <laughs> the box of gender, we'll probably be here all afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting point, too. Um, and certainly are there are there particular ways that you would say that where the forms of recreation that men and women are pursuing are kind of different or that I haven't totally figured out yet. It's my sense that women weren't really able to uh, participate in the sports. Um, but everyone seems to have wanted to dance, at least people who like dancing. Mm -hmm. 
there is also this is not really answering your question but there's there's also a real threat of sexual violence at these places um you know that's um there are all these forests you know there are a lot of of tales of assault and and as they're called outrages happening at these kinds of places so um also consensual courtship so um so with the increased privacy that these places offered um some some women and men found um, exciting <laughs> courting possibilities there but then there is also this this dangerous side to that um, mm. especially for women yeah i definitely have found tales of people finding love on excursions <laughs> it's not all like violence and <laughs> outrages and murder mm. but um so there's definitely that possibility too um there are also like in ferry boats where they're like that were going shorter distances um that was something that young people um sort of could do unattached more. So there are a lot of stories of um, people meeting each other on a ferry boat and then uh, women getting treated by the men that they met on the boat. And the newspapers were very upset about this. They're saying, they're, they're sort of saying that this is prostitution. They're, they're concerned about what's happening. Um, but we could also read some fun into that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like a really fun project all yeah. told um and a I, fun one to I pursue. love leisure so it's fun to study <laughs> leisure also <laughs> to learn more about Hagley's grants and fellowships and search our collections visit hagley.org slash research that's h-a-g-l-e-y dot org and to listen to more stories from the stacks you can find us at hagley.org slash stories from the stacks all one word or simply subscribe to our feed on itunes or soundcloud Be sure to stay tuned for our new podcast, The Mill Race, launching in July 2018.